The Lifestylist, episode 41, featuring Katie Bowman. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. playing me some acoustic guitar. It's fun to start and end the shows that way sometimes, especially today since the topic of the show is movement. And I thought, you know what? What's a little creative movement I could do while I'm getting ready to record my intro? And I thought, aha, play some guitar. At least you're moving your fingers, your wrists, a little bit of your arms, maybe you're bopping your head a little bit. So good times here. My name is, of course, Luke Story. You're listening to my show. It's called The Lifestylist Podcast. And it's all about building the ultimate lifestyle and what lifestyle is complete without learning about movement. So our guest today is Katie Bowman, who is one of the most world-renowned experts on what's called nutritious movement, or at least that's what she calls it. It's about natural ways the human body is designed to move and how we can integrate that into our modern lifestyle. So we've all sort of been domesticated and picked up a lot of nasty habits along the way that are not serving us when it comes to how we move our body. So we talk about how to integrate natural human movements into our modern lifestyle and make small incremental changes to improve our health and sense of well-being. So some of the things we talk about in the episode are as follows. What is the actual end goal of increasing your movement, of building a movement practice? What's the purpose? What's the intention? What can a movement practice do for us that a gym can't? What's the difference between mobility and flexibility? And one of the most important subjects that we covered was shoes, footwear. How can we have healthy feet and also decent looking footwear? This is something I struggle with a lot. And how can someone transition into a minimal footwear practice, into a barefoot practice without hurting themselves like my dumbass did when I just decided to start barefoot running all of a sudden without ever having even ran in my whole life a few years ago? funny slash sad stuff. So we're going to really find a solution to that. And that leads us into this other area that was kind of unexpected, but really fun for me coming from a fashion industry background is how can we wear clothing that really promotes and encourages natural, healthy movement without looking like a douche? Like how can we still represent ourselves in a way that is cool and artistic and have a sense of aesthetic, but also be able to actually move our body? So we talk a lot about that, and it's a pretty interesting part of the conversation. And then that leads us into how can we do the same thing in our home? How can we break this addiction to our sedentary, encouraging furniture? Are we addicted to furniture, and how can you create a home that's more like a jungle gym without sacrificing style and design? And that, of course, includes our workspace, our office space. We demystify the standing desk phenomenon, and you'd be surprised what we find out from Katie in terms of what her recommendations are. Are about how we can mobilize our workstation and really create an environment that is suitable for productivity and health. 
And then we close the interview with one of my favorite topics, and that is poop. Yes, we talk about how we can learn to <laughs> evacuate more naturally. Not a, not a sexy topic, but really, really important. You know, what's, what's our natural physiology want us to do? And that's really the summary of this whole episode is how can we operate our body, this meat suit that we're walking around in, this, this flesh spacesuit that our soul is maybe trapped in or has the luxury of being independent how you look at it, how can we treat our body with kindness and uh, at the same time really be healthy and have fun? So I really have been looking forward to this interview and Katie did not disappoint and I'm so excited to share it with you. As we move into 2017, I want to let you know that I've ramped up my coaching services. So if you're interested in working with me one-on-one via Skype, remotely, or in person in Los Angeles, you can go ahead and book me at lukestory.com forward slash coaching. And on that page, you'll find the different services that I offer and what I might be able to help you with. I'm doing this as a result of multiple inquiries via email and on social media from you, the listener, asking me very specific, some sometimes long and very detailed questions about lifestyle recommendations. It's oftentimes too much information to type, so I'm putting myself out there for you, okay? So hit me up at lukestory.com forward slash coaching if you're interested in working with me. And by all means, if you have suggestions for the show or any questions that you'd like me to address, please send me an email at info at lukestory.com and I will either answer the question or find the appropriate guest to do so. Today's episode is brought to you by one of my all-time favorite companies known as Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic make these amazing medicinal mushroom and herbal elixirs. So there's these little packets, really easy to transport, very portable, very potent, and very delicious. So they make a reishi, a chaga, lion's mane, cordyceps, etc. If you don't know what those are, you definitely need to look into your medicinal mushrooms. These are great drinks on their own or even to add to an existing concoction. Like I love to upgrade my Bulletproof coffee with Four Sigmatic products. And you may have seen this in my Supercharged Bulletproof Coffee video. If you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. It's also in the episode upgrade from episode one. But foursigmatic.com is the place to go to get these highly convenient, very powerful, really high-end herbal elixir powders. So go to foursigmatic.com, and the bonus here is that I got you a little hookup of 15% off. How do you get it? You enter this code. The Lifestylist. So at foursigmatic.com, enter the code The Lifestylist to save a cool 15% off. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends over at humancharger.com. The human charger is a device that I use on a very regular basis to not only treat the negative effects of jet lag, but also just to increase my energy levels, mood, and mental alertness. So how does this magical machine work? Essentially, it shoots white light into your ear canal via these little earbuds which hits the photosensitive areas of your brain and activates the creation of serotonin, dopamine, and neuroadrenaline, basically the chemicals that your brain makes to keep you awake and feeling good. So it's a really cool piece of biohacking technology known as light therapy, and this stuff's been used since the 80s, and I use it all the time. It's very effective. If you want to check it out and learn more about how to use this device and jet lag in general, you can go back to episode 28, where we talk all about it for about an hour. Then I want to encourage you to get over to human charger.com forward slash Luke. And when you're there, use the discount code story 20 to save 20% off your order. That's humancharger.com forward slash Luke. 
part biomechanist, part science communicator, and full-time mover, Katie Bowman has educated hundreds of thousands of people on the role movement plays in the body and in the world. Blending a scientific approach with straight talk about sensible, whole-life movement solutions, her website and award-winning podcast, Katie Says, reach hundreds of thousands of people every month, and thousands have taken her live classes. Her books, the best-selling Move Your DNA, Don't Just Sit There, Whole Body Barefoot, Alignment Matters, and Every Woman's Guide to Foot Pain Relief have been critically acclaimed and translated worldwide. Passionate about human movement outside of exercise, Katie volunteers her time to support the larger reintegration of movement into human lives by providing movement courses across widely varying demographics and working with nonprofits promoting nature education. She also directs and teaches at the Nutritious Movement Center Northwest in Washington State, travels the globe to teach nutritious movement courses in person, and spends as much time outside as possible with her husband and children. Welcome to the show, Katie. Hey, thanks for having me, Luke. I'm really excited to talk to you. You know, it's funny. I have this show called The Lifestylist, and it's about building the ultimate lifestyle, right, based on principles of health and spirituality. And um, it's been pointed out to me on a couple different occasions that I am sorely lacking in physical movement. Like, <laughs> I've only talked about fitness in general a couple times, and people are like, uh, how are you going to have a lifestyle if you just sit at a desk all day making a podcast? And uh, especially my brother, Cody Story, who's like really big into natural movements, a fan of yours, and has a gym here. He's like, dude, you're missing a huge piece. So you're my first official guest uh, on the topic, so I'm excited. Very cool. So my goal here is to let our audience know about your approach to movement and how we might be able to apply that into our modern sort of urban lifestyle. A lot of my listeners live in cities. Some don't, but many do, um, just based on my background. And so I live in Los Angeles. I've been in Hollywood for 29 years now. And my whole like biohacking lifestyle is all built around kind of mimicking nature and oftentimes using technology to kind of create a natural environment. So that's what I'd sort of like to focus on today, but we'll see where it goes. So so the first thing I'd like to ask is, what is your take on natural movement in general, and how does that differ from what we might consider exercise? Because I think most people that live in the city and most people I know, if you ask them if they move, they're like, oh yeah, I go to the gym every day, I move like crazy. But I, I think you have a different dif- a different definition of that. Well, the yeah, a bulk of my career has been, I think, dedicated to differentiating between exercise and movement. And I don't think it's necessarily the byproduct of living in a city as much as the fact that we all live in a sedentary culture. So I live in a very rural area now after many years in Ventura County, as we were just talking about. Um, and I've been in other places in the world which are more rural, and I've been to New York City, and it doesn't really matter where you are with your, when you're within a particular culture, there is this idea that exercise is the movement that humans need, right? That it's, it's exercise. Um, so I like to start off with kind of likening exercise more to supplements. So as supplements are to a whole food diet where they're extracted nutrients that you take in small forms, you don't really change how you eat throughout the day as much as you go to the special place to buy those special supplements. We think of movement in that same way where, oh, I have to move my bicep and I have to move my pecs and my hamstrings and I have to move my heart. We think about them as these 
separate nutrients that we go to a special place to get. You need a special outfit, you need a membership, or you need to pull time out of your regular life, right? You're not working during your exercise time, you're not being social, you might not be tending to your relationships or to your family. It's it's very extracted from movement, which is just, I mean, my mouth is moving right now. My eye, my eyeballs are moving, parts of my eyeballs are moving depending on how far off I'm seeing things from my face. That movement is the phenomenon of changing position, whether it's of your whole body or the cells within your body, which is going a little bit deeper into movement, where exercise is clinically the definition of exercise is when you're moving your body specifically to extract the health benefit from that bout of movement. There's nothing else really happening except you have decided to challenge your heart or your hamstring or your butt or or whatever. And so it's more a mental distinction between the two, but it ends up having physical consequences in that we all kind of, I mean, I'm sure it's no different in LA than anywhere else. Everyone needs to move more, right? We keep hearing that message. You need to exercise more. You need to move more. You're too sedentary. You're sitting at your desk. Your brother's telling you. But realistically, how do we fit more exercise into our life, right? It already took so much to get an hour a day regularly on the calendar. If you get 10,000 steps in a day with your Fitbit, you're feeling extra victorious, So when someone tells you that, no, you actually need like four or five more hours, that natural movement is something that humans do throughout the day that your life really should require more physicality from you, that if you keep thinking along those exercise lines, most of us don't have the privilege of having five or six extra hours to do whatever we want with and that we could go to the gym. So that's the distinction. It's it's an intention distinction. You're intending to reap only physical benefits when you exercise. In one of my books, the way I make the distinction is your brother's in natural movement. Maybe he has suggested that climbing trees is a good way to like tone your shoulders. And maybe there's a a tree climbing class, you know, in one of the parks where you live. That would be exercise if you're going to a tree climbing class. If you were, however, to go to, I'm trying to think of like urban area, like maybe you drive somewhere to, pick apples in the fall, right? That's like a thing you're going to do to celebrate the season with your friends. And you climb that same tree, you do those same motions. Your intention is not to get the physical benefits from it. Your intention is I'm enjoying time with my friends. I'm getting some food from it or whatever. So you still get the physical benefits. But during that bout of non-exercise movement, you got more. And so that's kind of ultimate time management, which anyone in a city, I think, would benefit tremendously from. That's a really great way to summarize your message. And I'm seeing now, I'm thinking of like, oh, if you live in the city, then you have to do all this extra stuff to move. But I mean, I could be, li- you live in like rural Washington, right? Is that? Now, okay, yeah. 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 Now I So do. I could be living out in a redwood forest, but still sit on my ass and watch TV all day or still sit on my ass and like at a sure. computer all day. So it's it, I see it is not so much like location dependent. It's more about like, it really is about your, um, yeah, your intention and the way that you view mm-hmm. it. So I think the way that we've evolved in in our culture now, or at least speaking for myself, is like, and why I've never liked exercising. And for those listening, I'm doing air quotes on YouTube. You can see them. Hi, air quotes. Um, <laughs> I've always just hated the gym. I don't like sports. I don't like exercising. When I was a kid, I sucked at sports. I wasn't coordinated. I wasn't strong. Like. 
So I equate going to the gym as something like horrendous that I don't want to do, but is necessary to do to be healthy. And your approach is more like, how can we find incremental ways as we live our normal lifestyle to add more movement? But what I found in your latest book, um, Movement Matters, is that this idea that we actually, <laughs> as we quote unquote evolve, which is really a devolving and becoming more domesticated, we tend to outsource every minute movement. Like I know, now I'm noticing after having read that from you, like when I go out to my garage, I'm not going to walk up to my garage and manually open the door because like I can save time and energy and movement by just clicking the clicker that I have hidden under the stairs. And so I caught myself today. I was like, well, what would happen if I just walk the extra 20 feet? I'd have to bend over. I'd have to exert a little arm strength probably to lift it up. And, you know, it's just like, oh, no, I don't have time for that. I'm going to pay someone in China like 50 cents a day to make me a remote control and a garage door opener. And I'm outsourcing that movement to somewhere else. Am I kind of getting your concept on that? Yeah. And to expand, you know, you need more time, like so that you can go to the gym to, to do <laughs> right. the bending over, lifting over your head movement that that it's just that it's like we haven't been able we can't outsource. We can't get rid of our biological need for movement, although we can outsource because of our position globally as a particular group of people. We can get other people to do those movements for us or to do the movements to make the technology that requires that we don't move it. But we are left with this time-space continuum problem, which is you still required all of that movement throughout your life. And now you're stuck with the dilemma of too convenience of a life. And you still need eight hours of movement. And the only way to get it is to put it back into your life, which is to stop outsourcing it. Right. So it's like that our lifestyle necessitates taking time aside, which is yeah. the time that I've never liked. I'm like, God, I don't feel right. like going, even now, like my brother's gym is down the street. I mean, I have no excuse not to go there, but I'm like, ah, oh, God, I don't feel like it. And it's not even a, a, like a gym gym. You don't lift weights. It's yeah. all like, you know, gymnastics and mobility and really fun, actually fun stuff in terms of physical mm -hmm. movement, but it's still time I have to take aside, or at least I think I do. So that's that's a really interesting way uh, to look at it because I can see as I live my life, my goal every day is to like almost it, from the outside would look like I'm trying to minimize the movement by using technology, <laughs> you know, so that right. so that I move as little as possible so that I can be more productive, you know. Yeah, it would it actually to an outsider. I like those explanations. Like if aliens came down and looked, what would they gather from looking at us? It would be clear that we are trying to that we do, that we prioritize sedentarism culturally, that that's a, a, a value so that we can maximize our time spent gathering probably income through the least amount of effort possible, that that's actually our culture in a nutshell based on what it looks like. And so, but a lot of these um, outsourcing of movements are unconscious, right? You know, like right now you're talking about what your garage door opener is limiting you from. The next step is to go, you can't really even find a manual garage door opener anymore. They don't even make them any longer. So as the culture, whether they are aware of it or not, kind of buy into the less movement is better, more convenience is better. And you could reframe convenience, just mean less movement. It's an easy word swap. Um, that it becomes more and more challenging in our habitat to find movement because the technology is there before you've actually requested it. And it's like um, 
in Move Your DNA, I talked about bucket seats. You know, all the seats in the cars used to be upright, you know, straight back, flat, not that comfortable because you had to hold yourself quite a bit. And then it started to get more reclined and more comfortable. And then now bucket seats are in anything. So when you have kids, you just put your kid right into the bucket seat and now they don't even have the ability to not use it. So culture does shape us physically and we start adapting to it. And then we just then adapt the culture more to our sedentarism. And that's how that's how they relate to each other. Sedentary culture perpetuates itself by making sedentarism more and more easy on you. And you don't even know that it's a choice. You just think it's the status quo. That's awesome. I love the way you look at things. You very much remind me of our mutual friend, Daniel Vitalis. He, he frames mm-hmm. the, you know, his whole rewilding thing and all that. He frames thing in a, things in a very similar way where like, I, I like the, the zooming out 30,000 feet or your aliens coming here and like really look at us. I think that we become so accustomed to our lifestyle that it, we're so close up, we can't see it. It's just like, well, mm-hmm. what's wrong with that? I have a remote for everything, so I don't have to move. Right. This is awesome. But then what happens when you're 65 or 70 years old and you end up you know, with all of these health issues and you can't move? I mean, I always, my brother kind of got me in the habit of doing this is you know, watching older people just walk down the street and look at how they move. And there actually shouldn't be anything wrong with them. But what's wrong with them is the, the lack of movement in their life. And that they've become almost like they're systemically atrophied. It's just like the whole Mm -hmm. body's like, cool, we don't need to move. All right, I'm shutting this down, shutting that down, shutting that down, joints, et cetera. So I I just, I love the way that you're able to frame things. It's very cool. So I want to get into another question then, and that would be, Without like a fundamental movement practice, if one wanted to just all of a sudden get in shape and so they just go to the gym and they kind of do these isolated, really unnatural movements, what are some of the risks involved in like our version of exercise now? Or what do you think some of the things are are lacking? Like if if I just, if I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to CrossFit and get ripped and I just start doing deadlifts and I don't have joints that are actually able to sustain any weight, like that kind of thing. Well, I wonder if more people are familiar with this idea when everyone went to minimal shoes, right? That was like, like Vibram started appearing. If people were runners and they thought they read like, you're not supposed to wear shoes. It's natural for the feet, you know, be naked and in the, over the jungle, you know? So then they just started barefoot running on the cement. And what you saw initially was a lot of injury from that. Like, yes, bare feet are natural. And we have all the musculature in there to support your entire body weight, but training takes time. Adaptation takes time. It's not simply because you just like will it to be so in the same way that you can't be on the couch and be like, I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow. To do that would be to introduce quite a bit of tissue damage all at once because you're ever adapting. The whole reason you exercise, you think of exercising for a different shape, but what you are doing is you are adding and removing parts to your body through adaptation to make another a subsequent bout of movement easier on you like that's the whole point is you're moving to make moving easier that's why you can adapt and and in the same way you're adapted to your chair you're adapted to your sedentarism to make sedentarism more easy on you you're always just adapting to what you do most frequently so you want to get in shape or join you know do large movements you just I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to do large or big movements. You just have to think of what have I been doing up until now? And can I take that large movement and break it down into 10 smaller movements? 
um, and practice those as a program? And then is there a way to start tying them together in something? I work in loads, right? So I'm always thinking about how heavy is this for my body to carry or how heavy is this move? Like, how does it change the way my body parts are pressing on other body parts? It's, it's kind of loads in a nutshell. So can I take this big giant movement that I'm trying to do and do a smaller version of it? And if I do it and see the result of doing it, whether it was an injury or too much soreness, or maybe you didn't do it enough and you're not seeing the adaptation that you're constantly tweaking the design of your movement program to get you closer to your goal. I don't think we have a lot of end goals with our movement, right? It's very nebulous. It's like, I'm moving to be more healthy. The doctor said I should move to be more healthy or it's anti-aging or I want, you know, a ripped body. Like sometimes we don't have specific goals and sometimes even like a ripped body isn't that specific. It's very hard to evaluate if you're on the right track with your training program and a lot of times, one of the reasons I like to differentiate between movement and exercise or the difference between health and fitness is you can be very fit and also not be very healthy. We've kind of confounded the two sometimes. So where I work, I work with a lot of athletes who are arguably some of the fittest people on the planet, yet they require surgery and medication and medical intervention at a rate equal to or exceeding total couch potatoes. So that's if you're exercising for your health, you want to be like, whose program am I following here? Like, I know you want to train like an athlete, but does that athlete, is that athlete prioritizing health or are they prior, is that their job or their income, right? So they're, they're just movement science is very complicated. And I think it's been kind of simplified where it's just, just move more. Right, which is like the like the registered dietitians of the world saying, just eat more. Right, if, if you eat enough, hopefully you'll stumble upon the right uh, balance of nutrients, and you won't have any of these malnutrition issues. But we've learned a lot. Like you can't do that. There are specific dosages of macro and micronutrients, or certainly ailments that go along with having certain macro or micronutrients dietary wise. And what I just propose is it's the same for movement, that there's a dosage, that there is um, lots of different types of movements that you need to keep all of your cells functioning well biologically, which is always my approach to movement biologically. Yeah, I've, I've seen the manifestation of what you're describing where you know, because as I said, I've never been into fitness. I've never been, you know, horribly obese or anything like that either. But, you know, I've done like the bare minimum. I like yoga, hiking, swimming, you know, the gentle stuff. Yeah. I'm not like your high intensity workout guy until about a year ago because um, I finally just caved and listened to my brother's uh, wisdom. But what I've seen is like, you know, living in Hollywood, there's a lot of people that are very fit looking from the outside mm -hmm. because it's about aesthetics. You know, if you're a model or an actor or an actress, I mean, you go to the gym really to, you do have a goal. Your goal isn't to be healthy. Yeah. And to, yeah. you know, have something sustainable that's going to provide longevity to your physical health. It's like about how your six pack looks, you know. But what's interesting mm -hmm. is when I go to mobility classes, <clears throat> I see a guy come in who's super ripped, super fit. I'll look at him and go, oh, man, I wish I looked like that. You know, he's stoked. But then you see him like he's basically immobilized because his version of you know, physical health has been pushing weight, contracting muscles, and then maybe doing some stretching to like, quote unquote, stretch the muscles back out, I think just through a lack of knowledge. But my goal has become more like when I see someone who has great mobility, mm 
that's actually more appealing to me and more of like a mm-hmm. worthy goal than the aesthetics at this point. Like I want to be able to move like an ape moves, like a natural human is meant to move. And it kind of pisses me off that that I've led a lifestyle that doesn't allow me to move in a way that the human body is designed to move by nature, you know? And so it's interesting because now I'm not so motivated to like go lift weights and try and get ripped. I'm 46. Like, what's the point? You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not a model. I'm never going to be one, but I would like to be able to move and I'd like to alleviate some of the aches and pains that are coming with, you know, I guess you could say middle age gulp. So it's interesting to uh, to hear it like that. So along those lines of just like, okay, I want to build muscle and become flexible. What's the difference, say, between flexibility and mobility? Because you have a lot of people that are ripped but don't have mobility. Well, just to hold on to that okay. thought for a second, I wanted to back up to something that you just said, which I think is an important distinction, but I cannot remember what it is that you just said because I got (laughs) lost on the flexibility, the mobile. Oh, it's that idea that, okay, I want to exercise for um, more mobility or more muscle mass. I think even those types of goals, they kind of fall short because you don't want more muscle mass for muscle mass's sake, right? Like if you just had more muscle mass, what you want is, and I'm assuming what you want is to be able to move more without pain to do particular activities well. Yes, which require muscle strength and joint mobility. But the end goal, I think we end up focusing on, this is this is where that nutrient-centric perspective keeps coming in. We keep thinking the end goal is more mobility, which is like, yay, I can put my arm over my head. But where some people can't do that. Like for me to reach my arm over my head so easily is something that a lot of people will come to me going, I wish I could do that. But after this surgery, I now have frozen shoulder and I can't put my arm in front of me or behind. Fine. What does that keep you from doing? I can't pick up my child. I can't get dressed myself. I can't go hiking or backpacking like I used to. So I think gym, health, fitness, exercise is a very specific culture of people who enjoy exercising for exercise's sake. Then there's someone like you, again, I'm assuming, who is like, I don't really dig the whole exercise for exercise sake. Like I enjoy moving and being outside and hiking with my friends or just enjoying the trees as I go by. Like you are saying that your ability to move through your life brings you joy which is different than those who get joy simply from the movement process, of which I think there is a group of people, of which I think I am one. I think people who go into movement education are people like, you could put me in a tiny box with no light and no other people, and I'm going to stumble upon exercises and do them every day for the rest of my life because I am innately an exerciser. Like I get joy just from the exercise itself. But most people I do not think are like that. I think that they get their joy or their flow in other aspects. I think movement is a component of everyone's flow. It's a biological essential. So it has to be woven through. But when someone who is not an exerciser hears they need to exercise more, I think it falls flat as opposed to You know those things you used to do when you were 12 that you thought were awesome that you can't do now because your back hurts? That's what you're after, not a back with more mobility and more strength. It's to do those things you did when you were 12. And if you can keep that in your mind, your movement has purpose now. And you're stepping out of the exercise culture and you're saying, I want more movement in my life for life's sake. You're not 
exercising more for more muscle mass or for more range of motion. Those things are not important to anyone really outside of a move, a physical therapist or someone who studies movement. The general public's like, how is movement going to help me? Oh, it's going to help you live the life that you on paper would like to be able to live. So if you can think about it that way, I think you'll already like er, be changing paradigm. So that's the first thing. Going back to the difference between flexibility and mobility, technically those are just terms that differentiate between tissue types. Like your joint is mobile where a, a muscle is more flexible. So it's just about which tissue you're referring to. I don't think that, how could I tell if my shoulder joint is mobile or flexible? It just depend on which tissue type you're talking about. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I think I was sitting here when you were mentioning talking about feet before and like the barefoot running. Mm-hmm. I have to go into that because I'm like, did she see in my notes somehow? I'm like, how? That was like, I had a very specific question about that. A few years ago, I was living in the Hollywood Hills and it's wonderful to hike around there and it's also great to run around there. There's not a lot of traffic. It's beautiful. There's a view, there's trees. And somehow I came across the book Born to Run. And for those of you mm-hmm. listening, it's, you know, a book all about how there's these tribal people that, discovered that, well, we don't actually need shoes and that shoes are what screw you up and kind of what you went into. So I just decided, I was like, oh yeah, this makes sense. I mean, a hunter-gatherer would never wear like these puffy sneakers around running. I'm like, these joggers are all idiots. And so I got my little Luna minimal sandals and started running around the Hollywood Hills. And next thing you know, I can't fucking walk because my knees are like destroyed. I'm running up and down hills. I'm trail running. I was like, oh, this is the best thing ever. I'm like uh, visualizing like past lives where I'm like a Native American running through the hills and you know, this wonderful, but it really started to hurt my body because I, like you said, I I had no adaptation. I had adapted to becoming a flat-footed, fallen arch kind of person and and really hurt myself. And I've been rehabbing from going barefoot. So what's the deal with like human beings being designed to walk around without puffy shoes, without high heels, and now we're domesticated and our, our, our feet are hurt and atrophied. And like me, I have those pronated ankles and fallen arches and it's a disaster now. So now I'm like afraid to wear puffy shoes or shoes at the heel because I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to get arches from a podiatrist and I don't want to go totally minimal anymore because then it hurts my knees and my ankles fall in more. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> what is going on with our feet and and our domesticated shoes, as Daniel calls them, uh, feet casts, I think. You know, right. feet, foot feet, yeah, foot casts are little tombs that we put our feet in. Foot coffins. Yeah, there you little go. Foot coffins. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think, you know, there's this, you know, that statement we're designed to move, I think sometimes buries the lead, which is we're designed to adapt. You adapted to your puffy shoes. You adapted to the frequency with which you sit and you adapted to the frequency with which you're inside and the frequency with which you have walked on flat and level and done your exercise on flat and level for the bulk of your life. You know, yes, you've got the hills behind you, which are great. But if you measured how many steps you've taken on artificially leveled hard, like you, your structure represents that. So... To me, the difference between barefoot or shod and unshod, Luna sandals or or um, puffy sneakers, the unmentioned brand name puffy sneakers, but we know they're Air Jordans, that that is equal in distance between couch potato and marathon. Like your, your feet, because they've been in a cave their entire life, have never even experienced the bulk of your weight. 
Like they, they have never been asked to, to do anything. And then, of course, in their adaptation to not doing anything, other structures have collapsed and fallen and different parts of you have become shock absorbers. And you just took that out and you removed a technology that you've adapted to. So this, one, of my, one of the things that I find really fascinating is like when a human evolves, does the parts of that anatomy of a human include the technologies that were there? So like there's like, a, you know, in evolutionary biology, there's this idea that when fire came on board, fire changed so much about us. And then you added tools and stone tools. And that started like it, there was a morphology that happens to the technology, a change in the physical structure that you can correlate to when the technology came on board and, and decreased our physical performance somehow change the structure that that you have to think of those puffy shoes as part of your body right your body had come to depend on them orthotic is the same thing they're they're bolsters without those bolsters you're physically collapsing because you don't know how to use the muscles you sometimes you don't know how to use them sometimes you just don't use them and sometimes the geometry of your body shuts those muscles off so there can be lots of different things happening there but when I hear someone in your situation is like, okay, let's stop. Let's, because what happens is you get to the point where like, I read in a magazine that those puffy shoes are going to, you know, kill my back and my hips and my knees and I'm not human if I wear them, right? Is that kind of implicit message? But if I go barefoot or in my minimal sandals, I'm going to like hurt my back and my knee. Like, so you're the only decision is to not move. It's like, I guess I'll just do a podcast then because <laughs> I can't, because I don't know which one to do. So the key is, just think about that exercise science, that person getting up off the couch. Like you have to take smaller steps. You're taking such a huge leap that both ends of the spectrum like aren't working for you. So you just slowly start moving over years, maybe a decade from one to the other. And you go, okay, maybe there's something between my puffy tennis shoe and my sandal um, maybe there's foot exercises I could do that would have given me more muscular support or something about my form I should have learned that, to change beforehand. So there's just probably so many steps in there. And I say probably, but I really mean for sure. And I've written a whole book on that. Like, what are the steps? I saw that you, because I know you had a book about for women ending foot pain. Yeah. And it looks like it's been renamed or, or else re-updated to simple steps mm -hmm. to foot pain relief, yeah. which I don't have yet. I'm obviously getting that like as soon as possible. Is that Well, whole body, whole body barefoot's probably the better oh, one okay. for you. Okay. Whole, tran transitioning well to minimal footwear is the subtitle. It, it, that is exactly the book to go, oh, I see. I didn't, I didn't know that my weak feet caused like my pelt, my whole body to slump forward. And that when I took them off, I just ran on the fronts, smashing down a particular, I didn't, you didn't know how to, you didn't have enough skill set. Your, your <laughs> toolbox could have been a little bigger, I think, yeah. besides the new pair of shoes. Well, it's crazy too. I mean, and I just, I interviewed a, a dent, a holistic dentist the other day, and it's like just Everything in that industry is totally backwards. And I think if you go to a traditional, you know, your family podiatrist or whatever, like I just went to one recently and she literally suggested, like, she didn't say anything about what shoes I wear or if I exercise my feet or the kind of terrain that I'm walking on. And if there's any diversity in that terrain versus, you know, concrete or yeah. walking around the woods, like, no mention of that, like, not even in her paradigm. She goes, Well, <laughs> I could put these silicone implants in your arches and just give you arches. I'm like, It's come to that. I mean, that's the solution yeah. rather than like, let's 
change the behavior and let's change the environment. And I, I mean, I actually was like, well, if, if that means I don't have to do any work, I mean, I considered it, you know, but it was so Frankensteinian that, it, you know, I left going, yeah, I'm going to try something natural before that. <laughs> Well, I mean, especially if you haven't ever strengthened your feet. I mean, like there, you have 33 joints in each foot. Like you could have a full on CrossFit training program just for your feet. And it does not include just doing regular exercises barefoot. There are really specific movements for your feet that give you a much more stable foundation, which to do large whole body movements like jogging. Do you ever wear high heels? Like if you're going no. to a, you know, fancy date, <laughs> I mean, like, no. I don't know how, I mean, I've been in fashion while well, I'm now retired, but for 17 yeah. years and it's like, I, you know, some guys really find it attractive when women wear high heels and like, that's their thing. It's like lingerie and high heels are super sexy. Like when I see a woman in high heels, I feel so sad. I mean, it doesn't even <laughs> it look hot to me because I'm like, oh my God, you're like hurting yourself so bad. Like, what's a woman to do? I mean, is that just the price that certain women are willing to pay to feel that, you know, sense of, um, you know, aesthetic or, or what? I mean, is there any way a woman can get away with wearing high heels here and there and like still have foot health? Or is that just like you're just toast? I mean, I think that your health is the sum total of everything that you do. There's a difference. I mean, it's like saying you know, can I eat creme brulee twice a month and be okay on those special occasions? Or can I eat creme brulee for every meal every single day? Obviously, we know that there's two physiological outcomes between those two things. So, I mean, wearing heels, wearing heels is a large category of lots of different behaviors. It can be every day, all day long, or it can be fancy occasions. And those two things are, you know, obviously, hopefully, very different. Um, I don't wear heels to answer your question anymore, but I used to as a younger person, but I would say more so because it's what's expected of you. You know, if you're in fashion, so much of fashion is culture and it's about, I mean, there was a, an interesting piece uh, in the Washington Post on, what is it called? It's um, athleisure wear. Athleisure wear is this new category. I'm into I mean, it. like you would. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would never see yo you would never see flip flops or yoga pants in New York City. Like I do a lot of press junkets, and I'm going into the mag all the biggest magazines, and everyone there looks like they came off a runway, which means full. It's not always couture, but it's like dressed to the nines, and we're talking heels that seem about that high. Every day, because as this as this um, author was trying to say, like, that's the polite thing to do, that you are respecting other people by wearing these clothes that limit your movement. So if you want to talk about sedentary culture, she actually said to put on something that allowed you to move freely, like flats and bendable pants and and shirts that weren't highly structured that you, in fact, were it was an infraction against other people. It was demeaning to other people. And it spoke that you were so privileged that you could just lounge around the day while everyone else was busy moving, you know, which is an interesting way of thinking about it, where I would think almost along those same lines of, yes, I mean, the fact that we don't have to move very much is also part of our, our privilege kind of as a culture that we can get other people to do that. But that to continue to dress in a way that, maybe looks a particular way, but disables us from being able to move is a cultural phenomenon. It's a cultural thing. It's a it's a decision that we're making and then we're maybe requesting of 
other people, you know, like, are you not professional if you don't have clothes that immobilize you? Like, I, I, I find that whole cultural aspect of sedentarism very interesting. That is really, really interesting indeed. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, just obviously coming out of my my background, and I still, I, I, I don't work within the fashion industry, but I have a fashion school. I mean, that's my bread and butter. And so I, mm-hmm. what I do really for a living, aside from the podcast and this stuff, is I teach people how to enter into that industry that's totally based on aesthetics. And I've always sort of grappled with the concepts that you're talking about because on one side you have fashion as an art form and it's a way to really represent yourself and your personality and your aesthetics and it's such a creative outlet designing you know how you dress and when you go to New York City oh my god I'm just I'm like so fascinated just to people watch because people just express themselves in such a beautiful way but the other side of it is feeling like you have to fit in and you can't actually be you if it falls with outside of being fashionable. And so I'm at this juncture in my life now, like I literally just want to wear like yoga clothes all the time. Like I just yeah. can't stand wearing like tight jeans and like, oh my God, I used to wear these, you know, like rock and roll kind of boots and stuff. I'm like, oh my God, how could I ever wear boots? I mean, I'm like right now I'm wearing my little Uggs slippers and yoga clothes. And I just went to yoga before this. And like, I actually walk around town in my slippers now in Hollywood. You know, I'm supposed to be like Mr. Fashion School guy. And it's just like, I just can't do it. You know, yeah. it's just, I want to be able to be comfortable and move my body just, and it's really hard to do that and like, quote unquote, look cool and professional at the same time. I, well, first of all, I can't believe that we've actually came around to fashion because I, I would have never imagined in a million years that I would talk about fashion because I'm the least fashionable person ever. But what's very interesting is I have a young daughter who's four now. I've never worn high heels. She's never seen them on me. We are very conscious when we we're buying books to make sure when you look at the characters in books, you will see that the almost 100% of the time female characters of books are put in high heels all of the time. So we like monitored all of that. But here she was desiring high heels. We don't have television. I don't know how she even came upon it, but it was very clear that there was something that a high heel gave her innately that she wanted. And so like I had, it took me a minute. So I'm I'm thinking about your, that earlier question of like, what's making people want to do this? So I couldn't believe that a desire for a high heel was natural, given that high heels don't grow on trees and you don't see them in like the collective shoe wear for the bulk of human history where you do see, you know, shoes made of different materials to offer a little bit of foot protection. But it's where I clued into what is natural for humans is adornment. And to be able to separate that for her, her only way of seeing people adorn feet was shoes, right? And so the shoes that we gave her weren't affording her the expression that she wanted. Like she wanted something different. And when she saw it, she's like, this is, this is different. And and the way that I feel when I'm adorned differently, which I think is, I mean, aren't all animals like looking for some sort of peacocking behavior to set themselves off. So I got her foot jewelry. And once she had the foot jewelry, not interested in the high heels any longer. And once I allowed her to paint her feet. And so I just, I think that maybe fashion is really the only form, maybe outside of body art, which is its own culture sometimes, is that most acceptable form of adornment. You know, you, it, you, you can't really step out of the box too much as far as your physical structure without being labeled counterculture. But fashion is the culturally acceptable way to adorn yourself. And it's just an extreme 
form of an adornment. So totally. that's my that's my total fashion commentary no, for it's, 2016. It's, it's, I'm right there with you, absolutely. And that reminds me, I'm gonna. I'll make a note of this. I'm going to have my producer, Tati, uh, send you some of these little things called Schwings. My friend has a company called Schwings, and they're they're for kids, and they're these little wings that you tie on the laces of shoes, and kids like love them. And that might be fun for your daughter as a way to kind sure. of like have her personality. So I'm making a note to myself. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing with fashion and movement because it's like, so I think the male version of high heels is wearing a necktie and like a fitted shirt. I mean, mm-hmm. but- like you can't even breathe. Like how are you going to do deep, you know, kind of core breathing with this literally like a noose around your neck? It's just, it's so weird to me. But the other side of it is being from that background is I really feel a certain energy and a confidence about myself when I'm wearing a $3,000 suit. You know what I mean? It's like you walk into an interview or a meeting and you look badass and you feel badass. It it really carries an energy. So it's an interesting thing. Like I don't feel, I don't know, I feel better physically and being able to move when I'm dressed sort of, you know, in my slobby yoga clothes. But I would never feel comfortable like walking into a badass meeting and pitching a TV show or, you know, whatever. It's like... It's not your power. You have a power power outfit and then you have, okay, I feel... Like I can do things and, else. And he, yeah, and even it's like it's a certain energy field, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's like even sometimes when I do an audio only podcast, I'll sort of dress up in my today. I just didn't have time, so here I am with you on camera in a t shirt. But I'll even kind of wear like my nice jeans, and I come in my studio, and I, I look nice, even though no one sees me. You know, it's just totally audio, but I just feel confident because I I'm mm-hmm. not wearing pajamas. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it's yeah. interesting. Well, I think there's a maybe a new space now. So. Heels were, that was the only shoe option for women for years. It's only been recently for men and women for shoes that minimal shoes have opened up this new category. So that lends itself to new innovative design. It's like, is there anything else we can do for shoes to make them convey power or style without reverting to the easiest thing, which is like, we'll just make everyone taller. You know, like like there's got to be some innovation. That's a nice thing is culture does also create innovation. And so is there a new spot in fashion where you can get these gorgeous power clothes that also allow you to be more powerful, literally, right? Like you are actually very weak in an outfit that doesn't allow you to move. It's so interesting that what we perceive as powerful is actually the opposite. You are disempowered by your outfit right now, yet it's invoking this particular sense. And and I also wonder, having a very particular, I have a rare body segment size um, that's not where it's designed in the fashion. Like I have very broad shoulders, very narrow waist, very broad hips. Everything is cut to make people look like they have a particular shape. And so I wonder how much of our clothing and our style is based on sedentary bodies that don't actually have that shape where we're getting clothes to get the illusion of what a powerful body would look like where you could get that just through moving. Oh, totally. Yeah, you know? we, we teach that in our classes, actually, when we're teaching people how to become a stylist, when you're dressing a man, you're creating a V. And yeah. so you have a guy that's like never built any strength, doesn't have any upper body. I mean, you know, you have your body types yeah. that you're inherently like sure. mesomorph, ectomorph, endomorph, that whole thing. But 
you have to take a guy who's maybe really out of shape and is a couch potato and is bigger around the middle, who's kind of an endomorph, right? And you've got to take him as a stylist and build up shoulder pads and like a big upper body because it doesn't inherently exist because of, you know, some genetics, but also lifestyle. And then same thing with a woman. Um, What you're going for is like that hourglass, even if the hourglass isn't there. So, you know, these are like tricks of geometry that, you know, people that dress themselves, some know how to do. And those that are fortunate enough to hire someone to dress them are really hiring that person. What I think it is just, you know, innately is the, the giving you the, the highest likelihood of finding a mate. You know, sure. it's like the, the ancient female sees the man with the big upper body. He can protect and bring home a deer, you know, and the man sees the hourglass in the female form and, you know, sees a good provider for the offspring, good yeah, a good mother, you know. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think that's where that stuff comes from. But the whole sure. fashion industry is really built around that sort of biological instinct. Right. And it's, it's interesting, yeah. but I, I love where it's hopefully going, where you can kind of have your own identity and personality and represent yourself to the world in a way that's creative and artistic, but that also allows your body to move and function. It's like I've been putting off getting the Vibram five finger shoes. Like I know those are probably like a really good option for me. And that's that's my one breaking point. I'm just like, I just fucking can't. I just can't do it. Yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, out in the woods or something like that. But I'm like, I'm just my ego is still intact enough where I don't quite have the humility to just own that and walk around Hollywood in those shoes. I already have to explain to people when I wear like my Earth Runners or my Lunas. They're like, "Bro, what do you wear? What's up with the?" Uh? I'm like, "Oh, it's minimal footwear," and then I have to like explain them the whole thing, you know. So, what was the type of fashion you talked about? The athletic, uh, athleisure, athleisure, athleisure. Wear. Cool, cool. Yeah, I didn't even know that had a name, and now I, I really should though. But I'm looking forward to more of that. I am too, and I, I mean, there could be. I just, I just had this idea for a book. I read a lot of books where you could have like, here's your stylish dressing tips for, you know, this. And then here's the exercises if you want that underneath your clothes, like where you would match the two dressing for a particular body shape and then moving for a particular body shape, you know, to kind of approach both at the same time as a transition. Sorry, that was a total segue, but that was a an idea out there for your listeners oh, who are entrepreneurs, cool. maybe like uh, whip, whip that book out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yo, listeners, you fashion people, those of you that are out there, like, please come up with some shoes that don't hurt your feet and don't look atrocious. Um, While we're on the topic of aesthetics, and I've, you know, poked around your site, which by the way, people listening, her site is a treasure trove of content. It's, I mean, it's like, it's overwhelming. Thankfully on your site, you're like, are you overwhelmed? Start here. (laughs) Because like, you go on there, it's like, oh my God, I'm so far behind. But something you do is you outline kind of your your home uh, environment and what you've created Mm -hmm. there, which is like a furniture-free zone, essentially. And while we're on the topic of aesthetics, you know, I'm always grappling with being a visual person and I love interior design. I love art. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm really into my apartments fixed up. And, you know, when people come over, they really enjoy the space I've created and I enjoy it. Uh, but it is set up to just sit on your ass. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have a pull up bar and I have my little, you know, exercise toys around that I try and, you know, grab here and there. But how do you deal with having a home that's aesthetically pleasing and that you can bring strangers in that, that aren't accustomed to your lifestyle mm-hmm. and still kind of live a normal life without having, you know, furniture essentially? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, I've actually thought of hosting a contest and asking really good designers, I like pick 10 designers. And I say, I want you 
to design an amazing, you know, what we call, we call it furniture free, but I have air quotes around furniture free because I have tons of furniture. It's just all, it doesn't look like typical American furniture. There's people all over the world who use the floor as the main part of their life. They don't have a house full of all of these pieces, right? All these pieces are very expensive and then luxurious. And I ask everyone to calculate their chair to butt ratio of their home so they can see how many seats per their one seat that they have. Um, Oh my God, that's that's scary. I just started doing the math. I'm know, like, I'm know. like 15 to one, I think right now. <laughs> it's really, I mean, some people are like 63 to two. And I'm like, well, your environment's sending a signal. Um, fortunately, I mean, so like these, we think of these as like West Coast. I'm from the West Coast. I was born in California. My kind of furniture-free bohemian is out there maybe for California, but when I have friends come over from the East Coast, it's way outside of the box, right? So decorum, again, we're talking about its manners to have, you know, everyone have a seat around a dining table and, you know, to have all the seats. Like that's a, it's a cultural issue. There's a way we have of relating to other people where you being on the floor below someone makes it awkward for them. If you've ever tried to like sit less because of the all the sitting is the new smoking and now you're at a conference and you're lording over everyone and it's like, you're rude if you stand, you're rude if you sit, you're only not rude to other people if you continue to sit on chair level with everyone else. Like if you do anything different, it makes you kind yeah, of rude. I've noticed just sitting in a squat for business meetings freaks people out yeah, too. <laughs> it freaks people out. They're like, why are you doing that? I had a friend who was a, a student in the kinesiology department and the teacher's like, why are you standing there? And he's like, because sitting isn't like, I'm trying to move more. And the teacher's like, what are you, this is a professor of movement. And it was over his head. He was like, I don't get it. Just, just sit down. You're making me nervous. But to go back to that decor, I think that I, it's like adornment for your house. It's design. I think I've, I've had a really couple of really great submissions where people are making things out of low pillows, you know, like just look at your, look at your decor is all of the seats. Are they all at the same exact height, right? Like there's balance to a home. It would be perfectly fine. I would say to throw out a couple floor cushions, a couple of those, they're not bean bags, but they're something a little higher than a floor cushion that allows people to sit. And then your regular chair where you're offering variability, you're normalizing an environment for lots of people who want different types of movement. You are actually making it more acceptable to move more in your home. Um, I did a talk a few weeks ago in Canada and they had put a picture on the back wall saying standing room here where they made it social, like having that sign give everyone permission, now the person standing isn't being rude. Like they followed the rules that the Institute has set up. So we throw a lot of parties. People know they're on the floor. We have a couple of benches in our home for people who are physically unable to get all the way down, but just mixing it up a little bit. Go, oh, look at your house and go, oh, everything is exactly the same height. If I, next time I replace this furniture, I'm going to get a couple of low things, go buy a couple of cushions and just start using them and don't even change your furniture yet. And you will find slowly over time that you'll be moving more. Cool. I love it. And speaking of furniture in the house, you know, there's been a big craze over the past few years of the standing desks, you know, mm -hmm. and you know, that sitting is bad for you. And 
I, you know, caught, I got on board with that. And so I'm like, cool. So I'm get a standing desk and I'm just going to stand up all day. And then I found like, oh my God, my ankles hurt. My knees hurt. I'm like, wait, this is. You didn't is, learn your lesson yeah, with, the, with the virus. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, this is like working in a factory. This sucks. You know, it's like yeah. we went from like factory, you know, conveyor belts where you're standing there in the forties and fifties into sitting at desks in the seventies and eighties. And here we are. And I, I read a quote in your book, Movement Matters, which I'm going to read. It says, you know, so it's like, are, are standing desks right or wrong? Should we be standing? Should you be sitting? And I love what you said. You said identifying the problem as the wrong type of stillness and not as stillness itself. <laughs> yeah. So what I've been doing since I discovered if I sit for too long, I start to hurt. If I stand too long, is I try and just alternate. I got a great thing called I'm staring at it, oh called an ergotron, and mm-hmm. I have a giant iMac, um, you know, computer, and basically it carries that. And then you can just move it up and down at will and spin it around every which way. It's so fantastic. And what's cool about it is the keyboard is down at arm level and the monitor is at eye level. Because what I notice is a lot of people have a laptop at a standing desk and they're still like on YouTube, you can see me, but they're still looking down like in that hunched mm-hmm. position, what you would, you'd have when you were looking at your cell phone or something. Like they're not yeah. ergonomic, they ergonomically, they suck the whole standing desk thing. So what's what's your kind of, you know, we only have a couple minutes. What's your yeah. nutshell solution to a workstation? Um, and I know you have something, a, a kit on your site about that too, which I'm going to explore. Well, dynamic workstation. It's a dynamic workstation. Like it's just, it's the same thing that you already understand about movement, which is movement is better than no movement. And that like, there is no one way to sit for eight hours or to be unmoving for six hours that won't hurt you, whether it's, sitting cross-legged on the floor. So in my office where I am right now, I have a standing setup and then lots of things at my feet. And then I have a low desk where I can sit on the floor. Um, So I can change. And there's a lot of new very desks and things where you could actually set it for four different heights. It could just be one thing in your office and you program it for four different things because your hands don't always have to be low. They could be lower or high. It's about movement, right? So you can cycle through your joint configurations daily, which is great. But maybe you can, if it's very um, labor intensive to change things around, you can cycle through them weekly or do a new position every day. You know, just do whatever you can. Find what's acceptable and doable and just start using your body less repetitiously, right? That's the whole point is you're just consuming a lot of one single position over and over again. There's nothing wrong with sitting. It's sitting for seven hours and then sitting for three hours after you did your bout of exercise. Just too much, too much of not moving. What do you think about taking breaks? Like something I'll do is I have a rebounder and I'll just go jump Mm -hmm. on the rebounder for five minutes or I have um, one of those balance balls and I'll just kind of lay on my back and get this big spinal arch going and just chill Mm -hmm. there for a couple minutes or I hang upside down or go to the pull-up bar, do a couple pull-ups, hang for a minute. I mean, I'm assuming you encourage just taking breaks. Are there any other little tools like that that you might recommend? Well, I wrote a whole book on this called Don't Just Sit There, but I also wrote a piece for an author, an award-winning author, and she was like, I don't know how to not sit still and be productive. So much of when you're writing as these long bouts. And the piece that I wrote for her was the bulk of what we do has this element of creativity for it. Very rarely are you sitting in front of your computer with this minute by minute output and creation. There's hours sometimes where you're just sitting waiting for the thoughts to fuse in your head or to think of the next 
line that you're trying to write. There's no need to be sedentary during those bouts of time. In fact, it actually shows that outside movement, movement first with outside movement being even more is what boosts your creativity. So I have found as someone who writes a lot and spends a lot of time on a computer, despite lots of movement, that I recognize when I've stopped producing and I start moving during that time and let the ideas work themselves out in my head doesn't require that much focus. And I do some movement-based activity and exercise is great. Sometimes though, I've found that I like a non-exercise movement-based activity, like doing a chore, running an errand where I'm crossing multiple things off my list, which is how I how I pair the idea of I want to be moving more than I want to be exercising with. I also still need to be highly productive. So that's, that's my solution. I like that. Move, do some sort of errand or other life task during my creative time. Don't always think about it as like, now I'm at home and I'm doing my home tasks. Now I'm at work and doing my work tasks. Now I'm with my family and doing my family tasks. Like that whole parsed way of thinking is the problem. There's just your life. Your life has all of these elements all of the time and you don't want to push out your friends and family from your work time, you want them to be in it. And you don't want to put movement away from your work time. You want your work time to be in it. So it's like reintegrating our brains and then thus our life. I love that. That's a great explanation. Really good advice. And now I want to ask you, as we're about to come to a close here, what's the most natural way for us to take a poop? Are, are you, oh. And I'm assuming I'm assuming you're you know about the um, the squatty potty you know which sure. I've been using for a while. Do you have any other recommendations? A lot of people probably don't realize the human body's not designed to sit up high on a yeah. throne. Could you give us just a quick piece on that? Yeah, well, the tubes of elimination line up best when you're in a squat position, meaning the amount of exertion you have to do when you're not squatting is greater than when you are squatting. Like you you are actually having to you know put in something into the equation because your tubes weren't using gravity to their fullest extent. So enter the squatty potty is an easy, low profile urban solution. I also think that pooping outside and peeing outside is amazing. Like that there's this whole, are you familiar with earthing, right? They started talking about, Hey, like, so I think that there's something to perthing which is what I call the earth thing that happens when you <laughs> pee on the ground. Oh, then, right, right. Like there's going to be an exchange of electrons there. Is that important to humans? I don't know, but I find that there is, there's something about it. We think about health and the physics of it all, but then you think of, you know, the ecology of it all, the fact that that's the spread of human seeds and, and whatnot. I mean, our diets are, you know, we don't necessarily want to be populating the earth with our food from all over the world, but that that's part of the give and take of earth, right? You take from the earth and you consume and then you give back. But right now we don't even do the give back part because our give back is so toxic. Our taking from the earth is toxic and our give back, we've just removed it and we're just slowly parsing ourselves kind of out of the natural scheme of things. So Pooping outside in the woods is just the best. <laughs> that's that's so funny. I've never actually heard a woman talk about like enjoying peeing outside. Like every guy knows oh, it. It's so su- it's so sweet. Like if you have a backyard and you just go out there and you know you can take a leak in your yard. I, and women usually are like, why are you doing that? Go inside. Gross. I'm like, ah, you don't get it. But you get no, it, Katie. Thank it's you. The best. Thank you. Um, I want my listeners in in New York City and Hollywood to uh, take the pooping outdoors with a grain of salt. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The operative word there, yeah, the operative word there is in the woods. Yeah, in the woods. Awesome. Okay, so uh, last question I want to ask you is: You've taught me so much. You've taught our listeners so much today. Who have been three profound teachers in your life? 
which could be mm. a book or a person or, you know, a philosophy or anything. I, I really like Erwan LaCour, who's the creator of MoveNet. I think he's a cool guy. Um, Arthur Haynes is another kind of rewilding guy, like um, natural plants. Robin Kimmerer, she wrote um, Braiding Sweetgrass, just on indigenous wisdom and plants. That's three. Those are awesome. three people. Like, yeah, those are those are great just resources for movement and um, this idea that that plants are super important to humans and vice versa. So, yeah. Great. Yeah, those are three people that I'd love to have on the show. So thank you. Yeah. I'm going to add them to my roster. All right. So, uh, or my, my wish list, that is. So uh, in closing, let us know where we can find you and all your fabulous work. I mean, as I said, your site is just like so full of content. And from one entrepreneur to another, I want to say like, well done. You've really got some amazing offerings and just like you have such a robust body of work and yeah. options for people. So where would you like to point our audience? Uh, nutritiousmovement.com is a good place. Um, as you as you mentioned, it's overwhelming. If you want, if you're like visual, you don't want to go through reading. My Instagram account, I think, is a really great place to get educated through pictures. Go, okay, I get it. You know, like a small little blip of information and a and a big dose of information via picture is really the easiest, I, I would say, in our fast-paced kind of you just world. Rem, you just reminded me to do an Instagram story of you right now. <laughs> so I'll tag you on there for sure. Uh, cool. Well, that's it then, huh? Yeah. All right, awesome. We're right on time, one minute early. I want to thank you so much for coming on Great. the show. Really like, lovely to meet you sort of in person and, uh, yeah. and to share your message with my audience. So until thank we meet you. again, you have a wonderful day, Katie. Thanks, Luke. You knew this was coming. I knew it was coming. We both tried to deny it. We're pretending like this wasn't inevitable, but unfortunately, the show does have to come to an end now. I want to thank you for joining me and my guest, Katie Bowman, today. I learned a ton. I hope you did, too. I'm very encouraged to start stepping up my movement practice, and I trust that you are, too. I also trust that you can probably think of one, two, maybe even three people right now off the top of the dome that could use a little more movement motivation in their life. Do me, Katie, yourself, and your friends a favor and share this episode episode with them to help spread the word about natural human movement. I'd have one more request for you, and that would be to head over to lukestory.com to sign up for my newsletter. When you do that, you'll be notified every week when I release a new episode. You'll also get the show notes and any relevant links discussed in every single episode sent along with those emails, which is pretty cool. So you don't have to stop the tape, try and write something down, give yourself a voice memo, screen grab anything. You know how it is when you're listening to a podcast and you're driving and they're rattling off all this dope stuff and you can't remember it and you think you're going to go look at the website when you get home and get those notes, you ain't going to do that. So sign up for the newsletter and I'm going to send you all the chronic goodies every week. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Luke Story signing out for the Lifestylist Podcast as I take us out with this little acoustic guitar ditty. If you have some questions or even suggestions about the show, you can always submit them to info at lukestory.com. And if you're interested in going deeper down the rabbit hole and you'd like to do some one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, yours truly, you can go to lukestory.com forward slash coaching where we can work together remotely via Skype or maybe even in person if you're in the Los Angeles area.
And do yourself a huge solid by subscribing to this show right now so that you don't miss next week's episode number 42 featuring Sage Dammers, where we talk about the magic of chocolate. <laughs>